I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow. We return in episode three with notable high-altitude climber Adrian Ballinger, one of America's most accomplished mountaineers. Besides being the only American to ski two 8,000-meter peaks in one day, Adrian holds the first ski descent of Monoslu, the eighth tallest peak in the world, and has summited Everest six times, the most recent without supplemental oxygen. He is also the owner of Alpenglow Expeditions, arguably the premier guiding outfit in North America, and calls Squaw Valley, California, his home. Our very first Afterglow conversation featured Adrian along with Everest climbing partner Corey Richards. If you haven't listened to this conversation, it might help you contextually for many of the topics contained in Adrian's second sit-down. At the time of our first recording, Richards and Ballinger had just returned from a 2016 oxygenless attempt on Mount Everest. Both climbers spoke openly about the trials and tribulations of their journey to the roof of the world. On the 2016 expedition, Corey was successful and summited, while Adrian turned back agonizingly close to the summit. The two came home to a mixed reception, and while Corey was heralded as a successful climbing hero, Adrian had to navigate his failed attempt in a very public fashion. Adrian is one of my closest friends, and I knew he would shed some amazing insights into how he took the failed attempt in 2016 and used it to inspire his ultimate success one year later. So the last time we sat down (laughs) in February of 2017, it was you, myself, and Corey Richards. That's right. And you guys had just uh attempted a show at the winter film series <laughs> before we had a roof uh roof compromise and um we're fairly fresh off your everest no filter 1.0 1.0 and here we are in what are we in december of 2017 um nine months later yeah successful the mission was accomplished yep you're back Corey's uh gallivanting around the globe i think he's in sri lanka yeah hi Corey. he might fly in at some point. <laughs> um but the last time we sat down was really powerful because it was uh it's a great conversation it was obviously the first episode of afterglow and you know technically you're our only repeat guest which i'm super <laughs> grateful for as a friend and um we're psyched to have you back but before we get into the successful 17 oxygenless ascent um, had anything changed for you personally before heading back in the spring of 17? Ooh, um, you know, I think so much had changed for me sort of approaching 17, but it was mostly about clearing out my life in a very different way than I did before 16. So in 16, I went in and I was still sort of running my, my commercial team, I was still, you know, answering emails every day on my phone while I was on the mountain. I didn't really know Corey. And so I was kind of like in charge because that's the role I play. And I had so much more experience on Everest in some ways. So I just felt like in 16, I was still being pulled by choice in so many directions. And when I decided to go back in 17, which I guess when we talked last time, I knew I was going back. But basically, that decision happened in October or November of 16. And I just asked everyone for space, like my friends, my family, Emily, my girlfriend, 
Alpenglow, my business, Alpenglow Expeditions, the staff there, my team there, and Corey. It was like 17 has to be about me. And one of the things I learned last year is like, I'm not good enough to get on top without every little bit of me and probably some help from people around me. And so I need no distractions. And so that included really for the five or six months leading up to the trip, I've never stepped back from everything else in the way that I did. Um, I didn't see my family nearly as much as I would want to usually or should. I didn't give Emily the energy maybe she needed during that time. Um, and Alpenglow, you know, Expeditions was on this like kind of like juggernaut growth process last winter. And I wasn't very much a part of it. And that was hard for my team at times. But I just knew I needed to be training four to six hours a day and I needed to be sleeping 10 hours a night. And that's not what we do in our lives. But it turned out what, to train at that level and to recover, that's what I needed. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest thing that changed was asking for help and having that space and being entirely selfish about my climb. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. It's kind of rad. We don't actually, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty selfish guy, I think, in many ways. And yet it's still, we don't often just put that out there. Like, right. hey, I need this to be about me. Right. Well, kudos to you for being able to just categorize it as what it is. You know, I remember Corey's talking about these things and, you know, saying how his, the fact that he was closer with you than he was with his ex-wife. Yeah. You know, and us just saying, hey, man, that. It is what it is, just being honest. Yeah. You know, I think kudos to you for being able to put it out there. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a huge part of Corey's influence on me overall. I'm sure we'll talk more about it tonight. But, like, you know, Corey's ability to just put his entire self out there. Like, I was going to say his entire disaster out there. <laughs> like, he just, he just is. Yeah. And he puts it out there and he talks about it. And it's really powerful. And me now being around that nonstop for two years. Right. Um, I hope some of it's rubbed off on me. Yeah. I need it. Yeah. <laughs> but you knew going, because I remember you guys talking about being on Charlie Rose and on that press junket after the 2016 attempt and just saying, when you first got back, we don't quite know if we're going back. And then within a day or yeah, maybe even a few hours, saying, we're fucking going back. <laughs> It didn't take long. It was cool. It was like coming back and yeah, and that total, like we were just exhausted and famished and so worked. And I was so heartbroken about not summiting in many ways. And then, yeah, like 20 second interview in or whatever it was, having someone ask me the same question, are you going to go back? And me just absolutely knowing, right. yes, I'm going to go back. Yeah. But then it still took a long time. So that was in June. I didn't start training and really thinking about what I needed to do until October. It yeah. took a, a good long time just to like get away from it. And, um, you know, even like Corey and I, like we, we probably didn't talk for four months, which I look back at and I'm like, that's crazy, but it's just kind of how it was. We yeah. just like finished this super intense experience and like had to let it go for a while. Right. And then come back together. Well, and I obviously know you very well and Emily very well now. And after chatting with her and her speaking to, you know, how hard it was to not be able to send in Kentucky for a mm. full month and falling hundreds and hundreds of time on the same crux. Yeah. And her saying, yeah, that was hugely instructional and I loved it, but I'm going back to send. 
<laughs> so I had no That's doubt in my mind awesome that you were too. She hasn't even told me that yet, but it does not surprise me. I mean, that yeah. like fire burns in her so strongly and yeah. like to have something that just like beats you up that much and like keeps you awake at night it's right. like you try to that's what inspires as well right to figure out like that little more piece that has to fit together to have that moment of perfection that it takes for her to climb a route that hard so it's hard. super rad and yeah it, it's so funny watching sport climbers and being a part of that because i just spent the last month in kentucky with emily where some of the best sport climbing in the world is and so many professional sport climbers are there climbing at the total upper grades the hardest climbs in the world and in many ways i think it's emotionally like mentally harder than what we do in the big mountains because in the big mountains it isn't all distilled down to one move left that you fall on over and over and over again like when we fail it's like lots of things filter in and eventually the picture becomes clear that you're going to get yourself killed up there and you come down like i did in 16 in some ways i think that's an easier mental process than just like this is it you know exactly where it is you know you're going to climb perfectly to it and then you got to figure out how to just have it right and to fail over and over and over again like that it's it's brutal yeah it's truly brutal yeah well and i had made the comment to her after i mean i was at the end of the conversation it was just such a brilliant sit down and chat that you know hey well maybe the failure will play out to be even more instructional than if you were to be successful on that route and she said yeah maybe but i'm going back <laughs> she was so dogmatic about it it was That's great awesome yeah um but i know you talked in in our last interview about you wanted to go to everest for an oxygenless ascent to see if you could touch that line of your athletic capability yeah do you feel like you did that after you were successful in 17 Absolutely. I mean, you know, so all along, I mean, I think that's what's fascinated me about Everest is how people go there to test themselves to their limits. And that was true in the 20s in the unsuccessful successful expeditions, in the 50s when they were finally successful. Then again with like Messner in 79 doing something just so out there. And it's continuing today with people like Killian trying to do what he does, you know, and go from base camp to summit in a speed record without oxygen. It's like finding those limits and seeing what happens and the struggle that happens and sometimes the failure and sometimes the death. It's the, the real consequence that's attached to that. And so I very much felt like I found that line in 16 when I failed and when I turned around, I felt like I was in a really dangerous place and it scared me as well as like inspired and excited me. And, uh, and so going back in 17, I knew how hard it was for me up there. And I knew I had made changes physically and with my diet and things like that, but I had no sense of whether I had changed enough to make it feel differently up there. And for me, getting back to that highest camp at 27,000 feet felt so difficult again and so humbling. It was like all of a sudden really scary, right? Like I was right back in that same place at 27,000 feet texting with Emily back here at home like, ah, I don't know, like I'm warm, that's good. But I like, it was hard to get here and there's still 2000 feet more. And then on the, on the summit day, I mean, you've heard some of this story from my slideshows, but I absolutely like, had the mountain been 
I don't know, 12 feet higher, I'm not sure I would have made it truly. Like that's how close the line was for me because I summited. But once I summited, I had almost nothing on the summit to enjoy myself. And then getting down was incredibly difficult. And it finally made sense to me how people sit down and die on Everest and on other mountains. It's always never made sense to me. It's like you're going down. You can always go down. Or I always have been able to feel that on all the mountains I've climbed on the planet. And this time on Everest, after summiting and starting to come down, every cell in my body, in my brain, was telling me to just sit down and rest. Wow. Just sit down. Whatever you do, just just sit down and then it'll be better. And so, and the way that sort of manifested itself is each time we had to stop to wait for a rope to rappel on or a ladder to climb down because there's ladders up there, um, I'd just fall asleep. Right. I'd just out asleep. And often I'd wake myself up when I started to, you know, topple off the mountain. But if I was comfortable and leaning against a rock wall while waiting for a rope, I'd be asleep until someone else woke me up. And that's like, to me, as a mountain guide and someone who's in so much control all the time, looking back on it, it's kind of like terrifying. I was out of control. I might not have woken back up if I didn't have teammates there and partners to wake me back up. And that's that. That's that line. Maybe it was even one step past that line. Um, and I'm really lucky I had people there to support me. No doubt. It was stressful for us. Like, <laughs> yeah. I have stress in my own life, but it's incremental. And I'm sitting there texting with Emily and trying to follow all the social yeah. feeds. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I think it got pretty real um, for Emily and for the like Snapchat story at some through some of those hours like so many people have told me how powerful it was when emily took over the snapchat story as we were making our summit push because we couldn't snap in real time and so what was happening is i or Corey or a ship or was calling on a radio down to monica a doctor in base camp and then monica was whatsapping with emily and then emily in spain on her own epic journey was like posting these updates of what was happening in real time and uh you know, I've gone back and watched the snaps now and like I can see the emotion in her because like the report started not being great for Monica. Like I was having a really hard time getting back down and I was mm -hmm. taking longer than I should have up there. Um, and I think that came through. It was pretty powerful. I think it was pretty intense for a lot of people right. beyond me. For, for me, it wasn't even that intense because like I was blacked out right. most of the time. <laughs> I was so focused. Yeah. No, it was real life drama for sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think for people listening and for us that kind of exist in the mountains and play in the mountains and kind of have that as our everyday lifestyle, you know, to be that wound over it is says a lot. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> I think it's it's been interesting for me too, because obviously I pride myself on being a really strong altitude athlete and, and this is what I do. And I'm a professional and, um, I'm a spot, I get sponsored for my climbing and yet, you know, now feeling that summit day and knowing what it took, how much help I had to get down and how appreciative I am of that help. And then knowing that last year, Corey summited on his own because last year, we just didn't expect it to be quite as hard as it was. And we only had one Sherpa that we were sharing between the two of us. And so when I turned around freezing cold, that Sherpa came back down from Corey to help me down or to make sure I got down okay because I could no longer clip to the ropes and use the ropes. And so Corey went to the summit and back down to Camp 4 alone. Wow. And looking back at that, it's like, it's so cool to think about. Like, 
there's a whole nother level of physical and mental talent above me still in this sport. And that's inspiring. Yeah. I put Killian in that group. I put Corey in that group. Um, it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. That's super cool. So I know you, you used your failure in 2016 and because I know you so well, I know there, there was other things cycling through your mind. I mean, I think Corey's quote, you know, that you came home and really owned the failure in a very classy way. Yeah. And he was basically saying, I don't think I could have had that kind of class to own, to own the failure. Yeah. But, you know, I think both of us knew Corey and myself just chatting with you and knowing you that, you know, there's other things going on in your head and, you know, you obviously took that failure and turned it into a success, but how did, how did, um, how did you use it as a empowering mechanism? The failure of 16 for 17. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm lucky or unlucky that I failed at so many things in my life to this point, you know, whether it's relationships or businesses or on so many other mountains, right? Like historically outside of my guiding, but my personal climbing, I've failed on far more than 50% of the things I've tried in the Alpine world. Um, You know, maybe I just pick goals that are well above my ability. But so I think having all these failures throughout life and still like being able to have a life that I'm excited about and proud of and people keep seeming to give me incredible opportunities, it made it, I think, even in this greatest very public failure of climbing Everest in 16 without oxygen, I had this belief that like, it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end for Everest. It wasn't the end for like, what else I can do. And so I think that's part of it. Like it hurts so badly to have not summited when Corey did. Like it really, really did. I wanted it so badly. And leading into the summit day, I was sure I was a stronger climber. And so certainly there was like, ego bruising and pain and like, you know, disappointment with it. But, you know, right from that moment in New York, I could also see this like hope or opportunity that like I could find a way to have another chance. And if I could channel even more energy into it because of that failure, then I love that. And and I'm lucky enough to have a really supportive community where I thought I could be really public about my failure as well. And that that would, failure is something we should be talking about. Like it is such a part of everyone's life from a kid in their soccer game or, you know, getting their first bad grade through to, you know, the, the top athletes, you know, making terrible mistakes in the big game or whatever it is. And and I can think of times like back, especially in my childhood and teenage years, where I would do anything to cover up my failures, you know, like I would lie about them. I would hide them. I would, you know, I, I, I told Emily this story and she was horrified. Like I actually remember trying to white out my report card once because I had gotten like a B and I needed <laughs> to change it to an A minus, which is so ridiculous. But like I was so scared of failure as a kid. Yeah. And and that created all these mechanisms for sort of protecting or hiding it. And that's something that I'm really trying to address now in my life today, like owning it. Yeah. We all fail all the time. Yeah. 
Well, I think failure is just a stepping stone to success, ultimately. And the, the adage, you're, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. However you want to spin that into a positive, which I think you've done really well. And obviously, it led to ultimate success Absolutely. this year. But I'm curious, why do you think you were that way as a kid? You know, it's a good question. I'd, I, I did come from a very driven family. My parents were incredibly yeah i'm not the only one in this room you know my uh my parents were incredibly supportive of me and and really gave my sister and i and me all the opportunities in the world to try different things and to travel and to do things but when we fucked up or when we disappointed it was like it was a pretty harsh world and uh they worked very hard for their opportunities and they expected us i think to to match that level of, you know, like uh, persistence and, and effort and sort of what it seemed like as a kid was perfection. It seemed like our parents expected perfection. And so my sister and I each went in different directions against that. I found ways to look perfect. And my sister in many ways said, you know, fuck that. And when, you know, like chose her own path for a number of years. But, you know, we, we both came around and I think we're both really proud of our lives today and and so are our parents um it, you know my my mom actually passed away about two years ago now and like having some conversations with her while she was sick it was clear she was really proud of us both um but it it wasn't always easy for them to tell us that i think as kids and so you know what that might have been part of this you know sort of like difficulty with handling failure when i was younger but mountaineering and climbing for me absolutely has been a huge part in teaching me like how big a part of fail failure should be of our lives. And, you know, I, I was a, and maybe still am a pretty average climber from an athletic perspective. And I've always had to sort of like manage that with my like desire and push and, and willingness to put the extra time or effort in um, and things like that. And so just along those process as a young climber in my twenties, like just learning to manage and deal with failure has been a big part of it. Right. And I think it's very inst instructional in life too, right? Cause I have a similar upbringing and, and I recall in the last even few years having an argument with my father who I have a very great relationship and love very much, but he was, you know, hard on me as a kid. And what I said to him was dad. Yeah, that was, that was tough, but, it made me who I am yeah. and it make, it keeps me driven. So it's a, ultimately it's a good thing. Yeah. There was some shit along the way, but Absolutely. welcome to life. That's how it goes. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's always fascinating to me uh, why people are so driven yeah. and what makes them, what's the, what's the push behind that? Yeah. And I, I'm not exactly sure like what it is. Like I know I'm a very driven person <laughs> for sure for my goals and what my, when I, when I have goals, I'll put a lot into them and sacrifice a lot to, to achieve them. And, I, you know, I'm sure that has to come from upbringing as well and watching how hard my parents fought for what they wanted. You know, they, they definitely chose their own path and left the UK and left their entire families behind and sort of created this life in the U.S. for themselves and, and then decided, like, the rat race in the corporate world was too much with that for them and, you know, retired when they were only 52 and, like, kind of like got rid of all the material possessions because they wanted something different, you know, like they've always been really pretty inspirational as parents as well. Yeah. Um, so 
that's always there, right? Even if you don't necessarily recognize like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool what my parents are doing when you're 15. Later on, <laughs> I think it makes a big difference. Totally, yeah. Perspective. And I know I know as friends it was hard losing your mom. Yeah. And it's something that I'm terrified of, to be honest. But did that did that change your approach to climbing at all? I think I think it did a couple of things. Like one thing was when my mom was sick, we ended up having a lot of conversations about why I would even think about going back to Everest. Like, um, so my mom was really sick in 2015 and I was planning on trying to climb without oxygen in the spring of 2016. And like my mom really pushed me on like, why would you do that? Like she knew she might pass away that winter. And like the idea that I would possibly put my family, my, my sister and my dad through another like heartache or even fear of loss to go and climb forced me to really have to explain why Everest was so important to me and why going on this very personal pursuit was so important that I was willing to put stress on other people and take risk for myself. And so those conversations were really powerful for me, having to try to distill down why it matters. Um, and then I'd say the second part of sort of my mom passing away and sort of feeling closer to my sister and my dad who are still here and my nephew, like my sort of relationship with risk is constantly changing and I'm feeling more and more, I would say like conscious of the risks I take and the need to sort of justify them to myself, even if to no one else, like I'm willing to take this risk because this goal is important to me. And then more and more I'm feeling like, okay, like, you know, after taking this sort of big risk, quote unquote, this past spring, I chose not to do a fall expedition because I just wasn't back to that point of psych and stoke and certainty that I was willing to put myself in that risk. Like if I ever do get myself killed in the mountains, which is obviously a possibility, it's like it has to be because I want that goal so badly that I'm willing to take that risk. And it seems like as I'm getting older and like watching, you know, feeling this community around me and all these people that I love and things that I'm connected to, it, it takes more to get me that psyched to put it out there at that level. Right. Which says a lot. Yeah. I don't know if that's like maturity or like, you know, that fear does grow as we get older, you know, like, or just like having lost more friends and more people around me, you know, that it just feels very real now. And, and the unknowns in the big mountains are really in any sort of alpinism or ski mountaineering. I feel like the unknowns are pretty, pretty big. They're everywhere. I, I, I like to be in control as much as I can be. Do you think that summit push is the hardest thing you've ever done? Yeah, absolutely. Like I was trying to, I was trying to think if there was something in different frames of my life or things like that. There are things that have been more in the moment dangerous, right? Like you know, I've been in situations, um, you know, just with massive continuous rockfall as an example I have up in the Canadian Rockies, where it's like I felt more in the moment um, at risk very recognizable but the the summit push on Everest without oxygen this year from when we left at 25,000 feet 
we didn't sleep again until we got down below 25,000 feet because sleeping higher than that is just so, uh, you know, dangerous. And it was so difficult for me. I had the most perfect summit day, leaving 27,000 feet and going for the summit. It was windless. Our Sherpa teammates were complaining that it was too warm for them. They were wearing just like wool liner gloves. Wow. They had their down jackets, down suits, like opened up. Uh, so, you know, they, it was the perfect night. And I definitely knew that leaving 27,000 feet. I knew how lucky I was. But the pace that I had to move at was just so slow, like hard to imagine slow. You saw it in the slideshow a couple of nights ago, like just taking a step was such an achievement that 2,000 vertical feet, 27,000 feet to the summit, 2,000 feet is like, it just seems impossible. And it seemed impossible for so much of it. And then I started sort of losing sections of the day or the night, you know, where it just, I maybe it's not quite blacking out, but it's kind of like that. And someone suddenly asks you about something that happened a few minutes ago and you know you don't remember it or it's not quite connecting or Monica is talking to me on the radio and I can't quite figure out what to say back. And so I knew how out there I was because I felt like that lack of control, that confusion, you know, it's almost like, you know, maybe drugs or way too much alcohol. And those are feelings I hate. I, you know, I, I avoid those situations. And then there I am, like fully in that situation of feeling somewhat out of control. And that persisted all the way up. And what made it sort of manageable is I would keep asking on the radio and then to Corey and, and then to Pesang Rinji and Paulden, the two Sherpa who were really with me, like, am I okay? Am I okay? Like, I must have asked it. 500 times I needed that sort of like confirmation that I was still they believed I could do it because I couldn't tell anymore and that's a place like I'm not usually willing to put myself and so that makes it feel like one of the hardest and more dangerous things I've done by the time I got to the summit like we already talked about it was just so hard to get back down and you know, like, I think it's important to recognize that, like, had we had a freak storm come in or had the forecast not been right or, you know, had so many little things not been just perfect, the story would have turned out really differently. And I'm just not willing to put myself in that position very often. Right. When I know in your show, you talked a lot about your ultimate success came from your ability to let go of your ego. Yeah. <laughs> Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I, you know, I just absolutely feel so strongly about that. And on so many different levels, like taking it all the way back to the training piece for 20 something years, I've trained for the mountains in exactly the same way. And I've always performed. And so it was actually really hard for me to go to uphill athlete, this group of coaches that coach a lot of my peers and a lot of my clients in Alphangle expeditions and to be like, I, I want to help. Clearly what I did last year didn't work. I was the str- quote unquote stronger and fitter climber of Cory and me, but he summited and I didn't. I need help. So right from there, that took a little bit of ego beating, especially, you know, when Steve House and Scott Johnson, they don't pull punches, you know, and they're like, they send you to a bunch of medical testing and then told me exactly how much I suck in certain areas of my endurance performance. And that's hard to hear. So there was a piece right from the beginning like that of needing to sort of let my ego 
get out, try to put my ego out of the way a little bit. And then a huge part that I spoke to in the slideshow a couple of days ago was just this, um, you know, so much of me in 2016, I actually think a lot of my failure had to do with trying to keep up with Corey when Corey started to move faster than me above 26,000 feet. And I, I do pride myself on being like the fastest out there. And, you know, here in Tahoe, I'm not the fastest skier or, or skinner in the skin track. You know, I debatable. I, I do fine. But, you know, like above a certain altitude above 6,000 meters let's say like You've my always genetic accept. ability has always allowed me to percolate right. to the top and that's why like I've had all these opportunities to climb with the Sherpa and fix lines to the summit with the Sherpa and all these different things and I've always just like owned that and Corey just crushed all of that but not until above 8,000 meters and it was really wild to see and in 16 it was just I, I couldn't let it go I, I just did not let him pass me, did not let him go and ended up, I think, creating a massive bonk for myself because I essentially gave my summit push to get to the high camp, camp four at 27,000 feet. That was my summit because I had given everything I had to keep up with Corey and had nothing left. So deciding to own that and choosing in 2017 not to keep up with Corey when he turned into his superhero self above 26,000 feet that was like so hard for my ego. My ego is me, right? It was so hard for me. I just so you didn't are. want it like the Sherpa watching me and all of a sudden I'm just dropping off the back again and Monica's on the radio like, you know, average time into camp four is six hours and you've been out for seven and a half hours. And it's like, you know, it's it's hard. Everyone sees it. There's no hiding on that mountain. And, um, but I was, I was, you know, thanks to coaching from Steve and Scott and thanks to having had a lot of conversations about around this, I knew that's what I needed to do this year was to let it go. And, you know, I showed up into camp and the tent was all set up and my sleeping mattress was blowing up and there was hot water waiting for me and, you know, ramen noodles. And those things made a huge difference in the past. I'm the one doing that, you know, for everyone around me. I think there was a big piece there. And then on, on the actual summit push, getting back off the mountain, like, at the time, I wasn't really asking for help because I think I was just too in it. But everyone around me knew I needed help. And now it's been more about sharing that story now that I've come home about how, how hard it was for me to get off the mountain. And that's the reality. And I'm really proud of my summit, incredibly stoked about it. But I'm also very open and I recognize that Paulden, Pasang Rinji, Corey and Topo, my uh, filmer, who's also a mountain guide for Alpha Glow Expeditions, they helped me off that mountain without a doubt, and I needed it. Right. And it's a, it says a lot that you could open up and accept that help, yeah. where maybe in past years you couldn't. Yeah, I think in past years, like, I think I easily could have, and I've seen this on the mountain with other people that I respect a lot, people who go back to Everest without oxygen year after year after year and fail. You know, uh, there are people who have tried it six times, eight times, nine times, and I think potentially make the same mistakes year after year after year, and or just have bad luck. There's a, there's a lot that happens sure. up there. But I wanted, after failing in 16, I just didn't want to get into this cycle of just like, trying to do the same thing and hoping the outcome was different, right? Right. And so... There's a terminology for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so, you know, I, 
asking for help was the biggest yeah. thing I thought I could do. And I'm lucky to have good people around me to support me, right. both on the mountain and before. Right. And that's got to make you feel pretty loved, too. And I'm assuming Emily played a large role in that kind of perspective shift. Totally. I mean, it's it's such a, a good point and, and something I think I talked about in the slideshow. You know, Emily, as I'm sure your podcast will, will sort of put out there, like she just plays the game a little bit differently. She's a professional athlete. But she's, as long as I've known her, we've been dating for over five years now, like she just, she's very open and honest and vulnerable about her weaknesses and her struggles as well as her successes, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, almost to a fault sometimes, right? Like she probably could speak more to her successes sometime or own, you know, own them and feel that just like incredible power that she clearly has and everyone around her sees um, but what she's in very, very good at is acknowledging her failures and her weaknesses and talking about them on social media, in slideshows and in friendships and with people she cares about and feeling and seeing that and how healthy it actually seems has been a part of me trying to do the same thing. So I think Emily's been really instrumental in that way. She's also been instrumental in like, you know, understanding I am who I am and sort of supporting and loving me even through all my bullshit and, and knowing that it's a, it's a process to try to make changes and in who we are and what's been ingrained since childhood and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, she's tremendously endearing to our Winter Film Series crowd when she spo- speaks and I think she's given three shows for us over the years. She laughs she's self-deprecating she make you know she is not afraid to kind of call it what it is and that's tremendously endearing people love her because of that you know people come up to me in the freaking grocery store and say how great of a show it was it was a woman let alone you know these empowering tales that they can learn from so it's great when we have these partners whether wives or girlfriends or climbing partners ski partners that can be instructional for us right because i think it's a Peter Croft adage that your partner brings out the absolute best in you, mm. whether in everyday life or in the mountains, and they kind of are interwoven. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, yeah, I feel so fortunate, right? Like she's she's actually ten years younger than me, and yet she's like my guru so so much of the time in those ways, right? And yeah. It's uh, it's it's really rad, and I, I think because of that love and support and how much she challenges me, I do feel like I've accomplished so much more in my past five years. Um, and, and, and part of that is certainly from the power and, and, and perspective she brings. Right. It's rad. Yeah. Why do you think your partnership with Corey is so strong? I mean, it's obvious reading articles, listening to interviews with you guys after the first attempt. And just so everyone knows, so we can frame that well, I think there's been over 7,000 people summit Mount Everest and less than 200 do, to do so with no oxygen. Yeah, that's right. A sense. So actually, there's been many fewer people than that because so many people have done multiple summits without oxygen, especially with or without ox- oxygen, especially Sherpa over the years. So, But 7,000 ascents of Everest, less than fewer than 200 without oxygen. Right. So it's very tip of the spear physical yeah, endeavor. I'd say so. Um, it's certainly not, it's one of the funny things about our trip, right? That it gained so much recognition and following. 
what we did, we, we went first. And that's, I think, really important to always acknowledge. Like 194 people had done it before we did, climbing without supplemental oxygen. It's still really fucking hard, but it's it wasn't original. What was really unique about our trip, as it turned out, was the way we told our story mm-hmm. and how we were able to share it. And so many people wanted to be a part of it. And right. we were lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah, and I want to I want to come back to that for sure. But why do you think you have such a strong climbing partnership with Corey? Yeah, I you know I think obviously so lucky. I'm so lucky. We're so lucky to have sort of found each other as climbing partners you know it is such an important thing and i certainly know other climbers who haven't found that partner that they just click with on that level or they've lost that partner through an accident or something like that and then it's really they struggle in the big mountains to 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 find to, to move on to try things at their absolute limits without those climbing partnerships um they're hard to find and build Corey and I finding each other was really through pure luck or through Emily, knowing that what each, having been on expeditions with each of us, knowing that we might work well together. I think what makes us work well together, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. In one way, we're so different. Like I'm so logical and Corey calls me a robot a lot of the time. And Corey's very emotional and everything's just out there all the time. And it's not always rational. And those two pieces, instead of like repelling each other, totally fit together and allow us to be a really strong team. And then I think even though we're very different people in that way, we have some really interesting similar pasts in in some of the mistakes we've made in terms of, you know, both being married before and destroying those relationships in really selfish, brutal ways. And, uh, you know, not always living up to this level of honesty that I think we both aspire to in our lives, in our communities, things like that, because of that shared history that we didn't even know necessarily know we had until two years ago when we started spending a lot of time together, we just became very, very close through this process of sort of acknowledging these weaknesses we have and these bullshit decisions we both sometimes make, but both wanting so badly to be better humans on this planet and i you know Corey inspires me and challenges me he's the one that picks up the phone and calls me and is like what the fuck are you doing right now you know and it doesn't mean he's going to stop loving me but he wants he wants to know and he wants to help and uh yeah it just works that's great and i really love the quote from him He's. I think he said this on Charlie Rose, maybe, but he he said about your your ability to process failure that it was a lesson in what graceful failure looks like. Mm-hmm. And he says, "I'm not so sure I could have upheld my end of the partnership in the same way that he did." Meaning you. Yeah. So fast forward to this past spring, Corey, he had a rough summit day. Yeah. And can you kind of speak to what what went down there? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think ultimately it makes so much sense what happened or at least my understanding of it so Corey had a good season again we were both feeling pretty strong and he was climbing like matching or exceeding how he performed in 2016 2017 because we we use tracking software like training peak so we know everything and we could compare day to day to the year before and uphill athlete would help us to do that and so Corey knew he was just as strong this year And same thing happened above 26,000 feet. He just took off again, just like last year. He ended up two and a half hours ahead of me into camp 
into camp four at 27,000 feet before the summit day. So I actually was looking at it and had no doubt it just looked like you'd go to the summit without oxygen again. I couldn't understand why someone would ever want to do that based on the pain and suffering of it, but he could. But then I think I think a couple of things happened. You know, one of the things we did differently this year is I left a couple of hours before him from that highest camp because we knew I was slower and he was faster and we wanted to reach the summit together. That left him, I think, I think it probably took away some of his like stoke because all of a sudden he was not alone, he was with one Sherpa teammate, but not part of this main crew, not not feeling that energy and excitement. And it sucks to look up and see those lights ahead of you and feel like you're never going to catch them. So I think part of that setup wasn't the best setup for his success. And then I think there is a part that, you know, I hate to like make it sound greater than it is, but like there's a significant amount of pain that goes into climbing without supplemental oxygen, just like everything hurts because it doesn't have enough oxygen your legs are screaming at you your lungs are screaming your head is pounding like there's so much pain (laughs) and Corey had already accomplished this thing standing on top without supplemental oxygen that's that level of suffering is hard to push through when you've already succeeded at the goal and so i think that played in as well where it just wasn't worth it at a certain point and so he ended up making the decision. He was really high. I think it was at 28,500 feet, which is higher than all the mountains on the planet except for K2 and Everest. (laughs) Like he was so high, but it it just wasn't worth it. Or he feared that he'd start pulling resources away from me. And so he decided to turn around. And that's actually the last thing of that whole situation, I just remember being so bummed and disappointed and sad that he had turned around because we weren't, we still would never have gonna have stood on top of a mountain together. And uh, as it turned out, he turned around, hit Alpenglow Expedition's main climbing team because we had a group of clients and, and guides on the mountain the same day. He hit their team, and because they're guiding, they're carrying extra masks, extra regulators, extra oxygen. And he hit them and was like, Can I take one of those? And he took the oxygen, turned back around and came back up and met me again. And I didn't hear any of that going on on the radio. And it was just the most incredible injection of like passion and stoke and like selflessness in many ways. Like Corey's pretty dedicated to never climbing with oxygen. It's just not his ethic on the mountain. But on this day to support me, he was willing to do it. And like, all of that just came shining through. Like he came up and all of a sudden he was high-fiving and fist bumping and just yelling and screaming and running circles around me. And it was like, we're going to do this. We're going to go to the top together. And the last, like, it was just so important in my last three hours that he was there. Right. It's special. It was unbelievable. It it is the single greatest memory of that trip for me. It's not being on top. The summit kind of sucked and I was really scared on the summit and I don't know if that comes through from like the little snaps and stuff but I was scared right but that moment on the ridge at 28.7 or 28.8 when he came quote-unquote running back up that's by far the highlight of right. the trip for me and maybe of my Himalayan career right yeah it's awesome it was rad yeah and I think you did lend some comedic relief and and said pelvic thrusting yeah. occurred as well <laughs> it was so. definitely <laughs> pelvic thrusting because yeah. it's Corey you yeah, know totally <laughs> Let's circle back to to the social, uh, you know, outpouring of interest, right? I mean, yeah. you guys were overwhelmed in in sixteen, 
And then in 17, obviously, you took steps so that you could respond to the thousands upon thousands of questions and inquiries. Right. And, and really, you're documenting an expedition in an, in an uncharted fashion. You know, there's, that's, that's ground that's never been covered, as far as I know. Right. At the same time, you, you know, I've, I've always heard you say that you feel very strongly about Everest and the role it's played in your own personal climbing career. You know, you love the mountain. Um, you go to massive lengths to defend what it means to you, yeah. but also uh, very honestly admitting the, the shortcomings and the problems that it has. How did you balance that outpouring of social interest both years in um, comparison to that mentality of Everest? Over, I mean, yeah, it was cool in 17 to go in knowing how big the interest was from 16 and actually being able to prepare for it infrastructure-wise, support-wise. We knew what we needed to do, and we also had a lot more time to think about the stories, what we wanted to share from the mountain, what more insight we wanted to give beyond here's Corey and Adrian being funny and silly on the mountain. You know, I believe more information helps people to better understand things, ask more educated questions, and just feel more connected to something like Everest. And so that's always been our goal. It's just showing more of the picture, good and bad. The reality is most people are never going to go anywhere near Everest, trek, even trekking to the base camp, never mind climbing. And, and yet it is this inspiring place that people sort of see as like a testing ground or a battleground or, you know, for individuals and also this really conflicted place where bad things happen and, you know, death is a big part of it and potentially taking advantage of local communities and environmental degradation. There's so many issues on the mountain. And so we just knew we had a big voice and we wanted to use it to discuss some of those challenges and hopefully le learn through that discussion as well, like what people are asking about, what they're interested in what maybe they want to hear more about. That was the cool thing about the Snapchat platform was it was such a two-way conversation that every day we were hearing what people wanted more of and then try, try, trying to share more of whatever that might be and answer more of those questions. Overall, like while I, I worry about like the sort of like how much social media can take us away from being in our experiences 100%. I certainly feel that sometimes. Overall, I felt like the opportunity to share this very selfish experience with more people that might be affected by it was worth it. Right. And I think you're at heart, you are a storyteller. <laughs> and, it, and it's yeah. got to make you guys feel good that for whatever reason, people are searching for validation or meaning and the fact that there was so much interest has to make you guys feel good you know that you're yeah. making a difference for people on a on a seminal level i felt great of course that people like liked our story and and wanted to share like love with us and wanted to share their stories with us you know last year it was so much about like classrooms who were following us and really powerful stories like that this year you know i just Remember, there were just a couple of stories that hit us so powerfully. People were fighting incredible like battles for their lives medically. And we had two or three like this where people shared their stories of what they were they were battling, you know, real sicknesses in the hospital, hard to survive day to day to day, and were finding inspiration in this silly, completely optional pursuit of danger risk that we had chosen. 
those were the powerful stories of this year. Like, wow, do we really get to do that? Thank you. You know, like we're so lucky. Well, and I think that I've always read that the Holy Grail of storytelling is someone's ability to take another person to a place they've never been and might not ever go. Sure. And so obviously with our modern platforms, we can do that many times over. Yeah. It's got to be a tremendously validating feeling to be able to do that. It's awesome. And I think when I look back on my mom sort of challenging me about why might I do this or my dad continuing to do, you know, say like, okay, you're done. Don't right. ever go back. Right. Like you can make a living now. You've summited this mountain now. You've this, you've this, you've this. It's like, why is it worth going back? Right. It Part of it for me absolutely is believing that I touch more people right. uh, beyond a very small mountain community, which is already, we know how lucky we are. We yeah. are so lucky. Yeah, we're pretty blessed. So maybe, can we talk a little about storytelling? Sure. Because I'm such a storytelling nerd. Um, you, you, of course, have been giving shows for us for a long, long time, and we always love them, and they just get literally better with every season. And I think the one you did a few nights ago was the most powerful one yet because you were willing to let down your guard even more so and be, you know, show vulnerability and, and whatnot. Did the successful ascent on Everest help you get to that point, do you think? I think it it might have. I, I think it, the biggest thing might be it just feels more necessary now to tell that more vulnerable story because people just assume now because I've climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen slightly different like impression like oh it it seems like the ultimate win or the ultimate you know there's some heroism to it or whatever it was and I feel a need to sort of bring myself back down and so it's easier to be more vulnerable now and to tell that sort of side of the story and it feels more important now you know after a failure like in 16 it feels like I'm I was probably a bit more defensive or Seven years ago, when I gave my first show in Tahoe, my first show with you, you know, at the Sawtooth Cafe for Winter Film Series, I, I don't even know if it was called that back then. Like, you know, I was trying to find my way in this community and sort of make my mark. And I think I probably almost wanted to not exaggerate my accomplishments, but make sure people knew about them because sure. I was trying to, you know, find my place in a community that, you know, it takes time to break into because there's so many crushers here. So, you know, I think there's been this process of, yeah, I, I think the community and and the space you create and the show creates has become more and more comfortable and safe in many ways mm -hmm. for me to be more myself. And those are, we know, the best stories. Like I, when I think back on slideshows that I've been blown away by, they're always when there's something more than just, we kicked ass, check right. this out. Yeah. This was amazing. Right. Hold my beer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That was a tremendous <laughs> amount of value. And I was super proud of you just as a friend and just, you know, hearing you put it out there. And, yeah. you know, it was tremendously rewarding for, for me to hear you do that, you know, Thanks. fulfilling, if you will. But yeah. I think it's also just, it's a moment in time, right? Like, uh, you know, Emily's in the room now. You can't see her. But, you know, we're just in this moment of time where we're talking a lot about, like, 
honesty and the importance of it and being real and even when it's hard putting the truth out there mm -hmm. and you know like that's true in personal worlds and it should be true in our professional worlds and and people appreciate it and that's sure. the awesome thing when when you do put it out there it's like people connect with it and yeah. understand it and you know it so i think it it makes me better at my job being a storyteller and an ambassador for brands and things like that and it's also just it just feels so much better right it's the right thing to do it's the right thing to do yeah well i think it's important for people to know too that you know you and emily and most of the folks we have on this podcast are very accomplished humans in in every sense of the of the word but life is messy, man, and it's never easy. And we're we're all human and wrought with flaws and shortcomings. Holy. And to be able to to tell that story and say, you know, here's me falling on my sword, and yeah, you know, I think that's a great point of empowerment for other people to utilize in their own lives. Yeah. I agree with you, and I think as much as is possible to do it in a day to day basis as a public figure or whatever we are even in our small little fishbowls of like climbing world like i i think we need to do it more because normally the way that seems to happen is it's like we look up to these people who are just like these these heroes and their lives seem perfect especially on so especially on social media until they become incredible train wreck right disasters yeah. yeah and the truth is i always somewhere in between those two i would think yeah and, and it, certainly it is for me. Yeah. I really liked w what Emily had to say when we sat down and chatted about, you know, she's very open with her social media presence. You know, she doesn't sugarcoat it. She kind of, you know, and you can see there's posts where like, yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a snap of Emily that she's not psyched, you know, like she doesn't look happy or then she's really happy. You know, so I, I love the transparency of it, you know, because it, this, this false kind of identity that all of us are guilty of, of um, kind of replicating on social media that our lives are perfect and we only talk about the, the shit that's wonderful and not, yeah. you know, the terrible stuff that we all have. Yeah. You know, I think it's important for people to remember that. Absolutely. And I think it's something that worked with, you know, going back to the whole Everest, no filter, Snapchat and all that. I think that's part of what worked is some of it was like ugly and painful and not pretty and Corey and me not at our best and like, I, I think people really appreciated seeing that. And we never intended or planned that. It was just kind of like, that's the reality of choosing to use a, a platform like Snapchat that's always there. And you're on a 70-day expedition. This can be some, you know, gnarly stuff and right. some not pretty stuff yeah. and some bad days when we feel terrible as well as the good days. And, and, and it worked. And so, like, now I'm trying to just live that more and more in my day-to-day. -day. Yeah, right on. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's kind of a good segue too. I mean, how do you how do you balance the the personal and professional boundaries of social media? Cuz you guys are very active on yeah. the various channels. I mean, I think Emily and I have really chosen to put a lot out there to be pretty open about our lives and our day-to-day -day and the good and the bad and things like that. And so, you know, I think overall we I tend to put more out rather than less because I think that is part of showing that like this life isn't perfect it's not always pretty that's what all the people following probably feel on a day-to-day -day basis too those highs and those lows and those successes and those failures so I think we really try to do that 
at the same time, I think there's just a risk of lo losing like the authenticity that we have between each other when it all goes on social media and when right. that starts to become the the goal instead of the actual relationship. And so we talk about it. We we talk we constantly I feel like addressing like when we need space, we take it. And you know, I think Kentucky was a great example of that. We were definitely posting quite a bit still and still being, you know, active. But we were a lot more, a lot less than I've done in the past probably two years because we needed time to work on stuff. And it was like, you know, we have to be selfish with this time right now. The real connections we have, Emily and me, but also friends like you and me and, you know, other, the, the people I get to work with on a daily basis, my guides and my team at Alpenglow Expeditions, like the, the people I most want to care for are the people who care for me on a daily basis. And that's a rel pretty small circle. And so I think that's still really crucial to never lose. Right. No, agreed. Where do you see the future of high altitude climbing going? Whether for yourself <laughs> or just in general? Yeah. Um, I think what Killian did this past season, you know, while... You know, he didn't necessarily achieve his exact goals, but Killian Journet, you know, summited Everest twice without supplemental oxygen, once from base camp to summit and back to ABC, advanced base camp, and then once from ABC to summit and back to advanced base camp. And while both, I think, were maybe more challenging than he was expecting, and he had some, you know, sickness and some difficult, different things that he hit, he was just showing what human performance can still achieve in these big mountains and how much further it can go and how much faster we can go. And I think we're going to continue to see more and more of that. We're going to see more and more climbs, the start of base camps, go to summits and back down without all the weeks of suffering and all the high camps and things like that. And then with that speed, we're going to start to see enchainments, like being able to do multiple peaks in single trips and things like that. So I find that really inspiring. I think we'll continue to see more difficult routes put up but that's a really interesting area with climate change in places where i climb like nepal and peru the most difficult climbs of the 80s and 90s are no longer climbable today and the sort of moderate routes of the 90s and 80s and 90s are now the test pieces of today so people are climbing harder and harder and more and more technical stuff but not necessarily like more beautiful lines or things like that because conditions are just getting worse in the mountains as you know things that used to be ice are turning into rock and things that used to be mixed are falling apart stuff like that but we're going to continue seeing harder routes up high and then i think we'll continue seeing more and more people on the i guess what you call the normal routes or the trade routes of the big famous mountains as technology makes it safer and and in some ways easier more people will want to do it and overall i'm i believe in that like i never want to dumb down the mountains but i do believe that even the tallest mountains in the world shouldn't only be for professional climbers who have dedicated their lives to climbing i think there is a place for guided climbing that's obviously what i do i own a guide company and and i believe these can be incredibly powerful experiences for people as long as they are taking the steps to become competent teammates and to really pay into this, like put their energy into the system in order to accomplish their goals, then they can take incredible lessons out of those mountains as well, just like I do without oxygen. 
And so I think that will continue to grow. And I think there's a huge burden on us as operators, as guide service owners, to try to foster that growth in a way that doesn't destroy the experience or the sacredness of the place or the local communities that surround that place. All of that is at risk, but I don't think we should just shut it down because it's difficult. Right. Well, and I love that about your mentality. And then particularly, of course, throughout the expeditions that you, I think, in my opinion, understand the bigger picture of providing a service to someone to open a window, to give them a view into this really magical thing yeah. that they would never be able to do on their own. Do you see your rapid ascent and lightning ascent methods playing into that? I do. And I think rapid ascent and lightning ascent, these ideas of going faster in the big mountains than we used to. They're just a, a natural progression. It's what athletes are doing. They're going faster. So Corey and my no oxygen climb this year was only 46 days instead of 70. And it's not because we're better athletes. It's just because technology is allowing that to go faster because we have better weather forecasting. We make fewer mistakes. We can you know, fly straight to the mountain now, all these different things. And uh, that's true for for guided oxygen ascents as well and i think you know the the experience has been shortening throughout time right the 1920s expeditions took two years because they had to sail to india and then travel across india through tibet you know it was insane and then the 50s were five-month expeditions from delhi and then the 70s were three-month expeditions and then there were two-month expeditions in the 90s and now they're four-week expeditions. Like, I don't think we should fight against technology when there are very logical uses of technology to, to still have the hardship and the suffering and the experience, but to take less time doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's crazy. I mean, while I love living in a yellow tent on the side of the mountain with Corey and not showering for six weeks at a time, like... I like it for four weeks too. Right. <laughs> a yeah. little bit a little bit less. Yeah. And then the second part of your question for me, like I still de like I see potential in what I achieved on Everest. Like that excites me to try other mountains without oxygen and especially in faster style, like from base camp to summit is something that really interests me. Like instead of breaking up in all these higher camps to see what my body can handle and these sort of big pushes. But that's balanced by sort of what we were talking about earlier. I'm very conscious of the risk on these mountains and how much actually is not in our control still, especially without oxygen up really, really high. Uh, you know, I have a lot of other things I love in my life, including the one sitting right next to me. And so, you know, I, I want to be very conscious each time I choose that next expedition. So right. do I want to go to Pakistan and climb K2? Sure. Do I want to go to Lhotse and try to ski Lhotse, which hasn't been skied yet? Sure. Definitely. But absolutely. But am I just going to stack them one after the other after the other and like not even stop to think in between them, which is how I lived all through my 30s? I, it feels different now. Yeah. I think it's a lot of it's a great perspective, too, that obviously will keep you coming home. For all of us who love you and <laughs> eagerly yeah. anticipate your arrival back in Tahoe. Thanks, man. I kind of struggle a little bit with this question because there's, I think it's a little bit of an egocentric concept. But fast forward 30 years, how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> oh, that's hard. I, you know, it's, wow. I, I've actually never been asked that question in a lot of interviews and personal situations and you know, immediately I went to like 
kind of grandiose things. I want to be remembered for how I, you know, protected Everest and continued the evolution of, of climbing Everest in an ethical and sustainable manner so the mountain didn't turn into the complete shit show that it has the potential to. So there's that clearly because my mind thought of that. But then more than that, like 30 years from now, like I want to have like a family that, you know, is proud of me as a father and as a role model in this community i hope like that's that feels just so much more important to me right now because ultimately if if you have children which for the record i don't yeah they don't give a shit how hard you climb or what you've skied (laughs) you're just dad or mom right yeah absolutely yeah and like i i think we have a number of friends sort of going through that right now having their first kids and then we have these incredible role models in this community who are raising just awesome badass kids and truly prioritizing that over maybe some of the opportunities they could have had or the like badass stuff they could have done and right. and those are the people i'm looking at and like i want i want that right yeah which is cool because the last time we sat down we were joking around of course but there's a lot of truth in that about wanting the relationship that we share with our partners on these mountain pursuits in our everyday life you know and yeah it, and you made the joke about I want a dog. That's my first step. I have a dog. I got a dog, yo. Yeah. Um, is is there anything from? We took our dog skiing, and now she needs stitches. We took her skiing for the first time, and now she needs stitches. So I'm not sure I'm the best doggy dad yet, but I'm learning. Yeah. Go and grow. So I think the only the only other question I want to ask is: there a post summit expedition depression where you've you've ticked a really big box? And I'll never ask the question, what's next? But have you experienced that feeling at all? So yes, definitely I experienced that feeling. It was something that I was really conscious of this year from having felt it in so many past expeditions and achieving things and then feeling that letdown and that need for the, like, to build back up, to have the what's next, to have a plan, to have something on tap. Like, I've done that so many times. And so... This year, I very consciously, like, I came off ever successful and everyone was asking what's next. And everyone, you know, including my climbing partner, Corey, was like K2. K2 was the obvious what's next. The next highest, without oxygen, possibly, probably more dangerous, more difficult. Like, of course, that's the what's next. And, uh, you know, I made a really conscious decision after Everest this year to be like, I need to figure out what I just did because I dreamt about this since I was 14 years old and now I've done it. And I want it to mean something more than just a stepping stone to the next more dangerous mountain, especially since I truly believe I might not have come off of this one without the help that I had. And so I struggled and tried to really be content in this success and not rush to the next one. And I'm actually still in that place. Like I didn't do a fall expedition to the Himalaya. First time in 19 years I wasn't in the Himalaya this fall because I didn't want to just step to the next one. That process has felt good. And I think knowing and making a conscious decision that I wanted to go through that balanced the potential like what, like that depression feeling because maybe it's the same thing maybe it can manifest itself as depression or contentedness like i kind of allowed myself to be content this summer and to be proud and to just like chill be be yeah good on you that's great (laughs) 
Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. I'm super grateful. Well, thanks. Right, right back at you. Like sitting in this cabin and just getting to do this, but with a microphone, like it really is what we'd be doing anyway in the skin track or yeah. somewhere else, I hope. But it, it's actually hard to like carve out that time sometime, right? right? And yeah. thanks to this podcast and these microphones, we make the time and we do it and it's rad. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Sitting down with Adrian Ballinger for a second recording was a true gift. Season two of Afterglow continues on Friday, November 16th with world-class rock climber, Emily Harrington. Harrington is one of the most diverse and accomplished mountain athletes in the world. She has climbed some of the hardest routes on the planet, free climbed Yosemite's El Cap, summited Mount Everest, and continues to evolve her career in a meaningful and relevant way. It's definitely a chat that you do not want to miss. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. It is produced by myself and my amazingly talented wife, Kristen Hanna. She was also the sound engineer and editor. The music in season two of Afterglow is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Make sure to check them out on Instagram and show them some love. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Make sure to subscribe, review, and tell your friends. Make us our dinner, Brendan. <laughs>